Hey, good morning, North Boulevard. Let me be the first to say to you, happy birthday, United States of America, in part because of our Christian family. Yeah, go on. In part because of Christian principles uh, over the of centuries, it's still one of the greatest nations on earth. Happy birthday. I have been asked to say good morning to certain people, and I don't want to miss the opportunity. Miss Skills Harris, welcome to North Boulevard. And Nicholas and Logan, your grandmother said, I have to have you stand up and welcome you this morning. Are you in the balcony? Your grandmother tells me that you're a five-star general somewhere. So, welcome. <laughs> My wife, has, my wife has two of her three sisters here, down on the front row, those of you online, yeah. And I know, where, I know why the third sister is not here. I know why. Uh, I had my immunotherapy treatment, my first one, 10 days ago, and Friday night I developed a really, like, severe rash all over my abdomen and on my back. And the word got out. It actually doesn't hurt much, and it doesn't really itch, but it looks pretty rough. And uh, Melissa came over yesterday to visit. When she walked in, she knew I had the rash, and she said, um, well, you actually look pretty good. And I replied, well, that's, you haven't seen me naked. And <laughs> it was a moment of honesty. And that's why she didn't come today, I think. <laughs> you know, now that I've kind of crossed that boundary, there's... There is a thing they say to public speakers, if you imagine the people that you're speaking to as naked, it removes some of your anxiety. I just want you to know it doesn't work. <laughs> I've tried it, it doesn't work. Regret. The, one of the biggest, and uh, I think the oldest newspaper in the UK is The Guardian. Um, I think it started in Manchester, now it's associated with London. A couple of years ago, one of the reporters tweeted... Uh, what is your greatest regret? Now, for those of you who are 50 and older, a tweet is kind of like an instant message. <laughs> the answers tell you that only the younger people responded, because I think if you're older, you would have different answers. But she got an overwhelming number of responses, your greatest regret, some of them a little on the humorous side, the time I vomited in my father-in-law's lap, uh, and this one, not seeing Patrick Swayze in the play Guys and Dolls. If that's your biggest regret, you've had a pretty good life. Um, <laughs> And then they got more serious, more serious, not being with mom the day she died. Where my cousin phoned me on Christmas Eve and I rushed the conversation because I was cooking and she died the next day. Not having the courage to speak up when I was a victim of abuse as a teenager. Here's one, never going to the university, left me disadvantaged all of my life listening to a teacher who told me I would never amount to anything. Or here's one, that my mother died too young to see me turn from an ungrateful, defiant teenager into the person she had always wanted me to be. Listening to my dad when he said I would never amount to anything, having an affair that cost me my job and cost my friend a marriage. Not telling someone I loved them 20 years ago, and now it's too late. Marrying the first person who asked because I thought no one else would ever ask. <clears throat> Here's one. I regret being scared all the time or worrying pretty much about everything all the time. Or this one, being too afraid just to live. 
Regret's an interesting emotion. It's a species of grief, at least the way we typically use the word regret. There are other ways to use it, but I'll use them in the common usage. What makes regret, I think, a little bit more painful than other species of grief, of grief is that regret is usually self-imposed. Regret is when we feel grief over a poor decision we made or an action we took that we shouldn't have taken or missing an opportunity that we could have taken. So in that sense, regret is not just feeling grief, but it's feeling the stupidity of, I didn't have to go through this. When you think about regret, it goes with all kinds of themes in our life. The idea that I can't believe I did this or that, or I missed my opportunity, or I'm ashamed of myself, or if only I had said yes or had said no to this, or I should have known better, or I've wrecked everything, or I'll never get over this. In a lot of ways, regret involves two things. First, it involves the thing that we regret, whether, again, it was a decision, a moral failure, whether it was a missed opportunity, maybe it was just being human, that as a human we just couldn't see all factors when we made a decision. That's one aspect of regret, but the other aspect is the feeling that we carry around with us after we've done that. And both matter. So the regret over the action often requires a counteraction. But what do we do with the residual feelings of regret? What do you do when you reach a certain point in life where you look back and you say, I scrambled an egg and I can't unscramble it? Uh, what do you do when regrets start to pile up in life and they become, in some cases, maybe a source of great discouragement or a loss of hope, or maybe even in some cases, nearly debilitating? I want you to know, though, though we may have caused the thing we regret, the evil one uses our regrets to cripple us. So I just want to remind you that the devil is a liar. He's the father of all lies, and he's really good at it. The devil is far smarter than we'll ever be. And he understands how to work on our emotions, to turn our emotions against us. He knows how to make us hate ourselves. He knows how to make us become discouraged. He knows how to steal our hope. He knows how to rob our peace. He knows how to take away our joy. And so what he does with our regrets, he keeps us stuck in the past. I heard this years ago. Maybe it's not always true. We have people here who are clinically qualified to answer the question. I'll just tell you a little tagline that I often use. Uh, as a person who has had clinical depression, as well as a person who oftentimes is too anxious, worry for me is when I'm depressed about the past Anxiety is when I'm concerned about the future. And oftentimes, depression seems to be the inability to get over my regrets. Satan uses regret to rob us of peace and joy in the present. That is, when you put your head on your pillow at night, sometimes you just play through all the things that could have been. And maybe as you get older, they seem to pile up like a ball and a chain that must be dragged through our sleep. Sometimes he encourages bitterness in our relationships, that resentment, or the idea that I could have done this if only you hadn't done that. Sometimes he will whisper in our ears that we have a right to be angry, we have a right to be cynical, or that we should live in fear. He diminishes our hopes, he discourages us and distracts us from trusting a loving father. Well, into this story of regret 
comes one of the most fantastic parables Jesus ever tells, the parable of the so-called prodigal son. I think it might be the most, perhaps the best known of all of Jesus' parables, the most often repeated parable of Jesus. And it is a story of prodigal nature. Prodigal not meaning what we often think it means. The word prodigal really doesn't mean sinful. We kind of use it and think of it as a term that's the equivalent of sinful. The word prodigal actually means reckless. It's connected to our English word prodigious, that is overspending. It's the idea of not really calculating the cost of something or the idea of being way, way excessive. I'm going to walk through the story of the prodigal son that begins in Luke 15, verse 11. I want to actually ask you to open up a Bible. I'm just getting, uh, as the years go by, more and more sensitive to the need for us to have a Bible open. So having the images on the screen, the scripture on the screen is really helpful. I do get that. But man, that just if I could condition you always to have a Bible open, then I will have served you well, I think. So for, uh, Luke 15, verse 11. What I want you to see as I walk through the, the text is this crazy thing that everybody in this text turns out to be prodigal. I think that's the biggest surprise of the text. Everybody in this text is going to be prodigal. The younger son will be prodigal. The older son will be prodigal. And the biggest surprise is the father is going to be prodigal in this story. And as I walk through the story, I... Um, I want to remind you that Jesus is answering a question, an implicit question. Jesus has been eating with sinners. Uh, the text says in chapter 15, verse 2, he's eating, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors, as it actually says. So in that day, a tax collector was a, a, almost like a Taliban. They were re rebels against the people of God. And Jesus was having dinner with them. And those who were regular church-going people who were trying to live the right kind of lives, they just couldn't help but be offended by this. That Jesus ought to know better than to hang out with people like this. And so Jesus tells three parables to explain why he's doing what he's doing. A parable of a lost sheep. If you lose a sheep, you're willing to leave 99 healthy sheep to go find the one lost one. The parable of a lost coin. A woman who loses her coin and cleans the whole house in order to find that one denarius, that one coin. And then the parable of the lost son, or as we would say, the prodigal son, in which he wants us to know that he has come to find that which is lost, which is really good news. Because that means he came to find you. There are three, I think, really strong themes in this uh, narrative. The theme of regret, and that's the one I'm going to talk about. The theme of resentment, we'll see that with the older son. And then the theme of God's grace, we'll touch on that as well. And I want to invite you to do something. So I think there are probably three kinds of people listening to this lesson now. Those of you online as well. On the one hand, there are, I'll call them the Bill Bryants. Bill Bryant was the first song leader North Boulevard ever had in 19, 1947, 75 years ago. He opened North Boulevard up with the song, Blessed Assurance, the first day we met. By the way, that's why every time we open a campus, we sing Blessed Assurance. 25 years ago, he was a founding elder as well, or, or he was a founding member and became an elder. He had heart surgery, and I've heard this before, but for whatever reason, when he said it, it stuck with me. I was visiting before he had a valve put in. And he said to me, I, he was reflecting on life and the fact that, you know, this could, there's always a possibility when you go through surgery that you won't come out. And he said to me, David, I want you to know if I could change anything in my life, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change a thing. I have no regrets. You know, very few people can say that and say it with a clean conscience. 
He was able to say it because Mr. Bryant cleaned his life up as he went along and he dealt with his debts as he went along. So he really could say that in the purest of senses. There are other people who say they have no regrets, but they ought to. They just don't have very well-formed consciences. They should look back on their life and actually there are people who should feel quite a bit of regret. Um, and then there's most of us somewhere in the uh, middle. And that is, for many of us, our regrets start to pile up like luggage. You know, the last 10 or 15 years, unless you fly southwest, you have to pay for excess baggage. And I've often thought about how you have to drag your baggage around from airport to airport. And in some ways, regret is like that. You just keep adding more and more and therefore dragging around more and more. And you reach a certain point in life. We have teenagers here to my left who might have regrets, but maybe they haven't piled up. But I can tell you, you reach a certain point in life or maybe you get a certain diagnosis and your regrets, your regrets all come before you. And you start to ask the question, wow, do I want to haul all this luggage with me right up to the grave or not? And the good news of the story of the prodigal son is that Christ, and this is a real story, it's not a myth, it's not a fancy, um, it's not a fanciful tale is what I'm trying to say, that really happens, Christ really does release you of the bondage of your regrets. In fact, he can do more than give you victory. He can turn a regret into a grace. So let's see how by reading our text starting at verse 11. It's the parable of the prodigal, the wasteful or excessive son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That's the word prodigal in Latin. That's where we get the word prodigal son. Um, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Just a word on that. Uh, you know, for North Americans, the idea of pork and ham and pig, you know, we, we laugh at it because it's dirty to us, but we still enjoy eating it. In fact, I, I bet tomorrow night there's going to be a whole lot of pigs eating. In the Jewish world, not only were pigs not eaten, but they were considered really filthy animals. So there's a social meaning here that might miss us. If you really want to get kind of a sense of the social meaning, it would be as though uh, Jesus says in the parable, he went and was forced to feed cockroaches. That's, that's how uh, an observant Jew looks at pigs, that they're filthy animals. So this man is at the lowest place of his life. And ironically, he started with a really good life. He had a father with a hacienda or a big estate or quite a bit of money, and he's now squandered all of it and finds himself with the pigs, longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. In some ways, I won't spend much time on this, the story of the prodigal son is the story of humanity. This is what makes the Christian message so appealing is that it's so honest and so true that all of us have our innocent period where we're trusting, where life is good, where we're loved, where the world seems boundless before us. And all of us repeat the story of the Garden of Eden where we give that up for our sins and our poor choices and our terrible decisions. And all of us enter that period where we feel like we're with pigs. 
So the story in a lot of ways is the story for every person. It's for all of us. The very next verse seems to me to have one of the smartest statements in all of Scripture, verse 17. When he came to his senses, that is, you don't have to stay with the pigs. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I just want to pause and say something. I'll get a chance to address this because it's a short sermon. I can't do a whole lot with it. But I do want to say every sin actually has both a horizontal and a vertical dimension. Every sin is against somebody. And every sin is also against heaven. So I don't know that we think this through. Every lie you tell deprives somebody of the truth, and the truth sets us free. You have deprived, every lie you tell deprives somebody of a little bit of freedom. Even going online, if you're looking at pornography online, by looking at it, you're supporting some organization that is most likely keeping a woman in some sort of bondage. The simple act of looking at it is actually a sin against someone else. It's keeping someone else in bondage. Every sin has that horizontal dimension to it. That's why justice demands some kind of amend-making. We'll talk about it in a second. But don't miss the fact that it's also a breaking of God's goodness and creation, that every sin somehow burdens the creation with one more piece of garbage multiplied out by seven billion humans and the garbage piles high to the heaven, and we must all live in that garbage. And so what this young prodigal boy recognized is his sins were not only against his father, but they're also against heaven. That's why sin is so serious. That's why justice is so important, and it's what makes grace so beautiful. Let's keep reading. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Verse 20. Uh, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the theme of grace that the father must have been, best we can tell, every morning and every evening walking out to the horizon to look to see Has my dead son come back to life yet? Has my lost son returned home? Has the prodigal learned yet about my love? Well, most likely, one of the original purposes of this parable was to address the older brother who is having a hard time with the father's, I said the father's prodigal as well, the father's prodigal grace, because the father had a prodigal grace. He had an expensive grace. He had a, a reckless grace. And the father had an extravagant grace, every bit as extravagant as the waste of the son. 
was the grace of the father. I mean, think about it, that he's willing to take this son back. In fact, the older son's going to say in just a moment, he's going to say, don't you know, he's, he wasted all that money on prostitutes and look how you're treating him when he comes home. That's prodigal grace there. It's expensive grace. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants, asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. By the way, just as a side note, the fatted calf, the ring, all that was being done, it belonged to the older son now. It was in line for him to inherit it. So you can see why he was irritable about it. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. By the way, I can sympathize with the older brother. You know, he's made to be the monster in most stories, most tellings of this. But my goodness, he evidently tried to do the right thing. But what you realize is he too had a prodigal sense about him. He was prodigal with his stinginess. He was prodigal with his unwillingness to show grace. That he too was reveling in excessive law and unable to see the beauty that stood right before him in a son who had come back to life. And so we end the story, verses 31 and 32. My son, the father says, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Here's what I want to say. At the end of the day, this story, which covers themes of grace, as I said, resentment and other things, is at least for us this morning, a story of how God can turn your regrets into grace. And I want to tell you, it's not only forensic. It's not, it's not just rhetorical. Like, I'm not telling you this because it's a good turn of a phrase. It, it happens in the real world. I mean, it really does happen. The debt really is paid off. The regret really is redeemed. The direction really is changed. The dead really are raised. The lost they really are found, that regrets really can become acts of grace. I've seen it happen a million times. And this text, though it's not exactly a program for how regret becomes grace, it's a great story. Can I just point out a few things that I see in this story that I see elsewhere? The first thing I want to say before I get into it, by the way, is this. I believe that for many of us, we have to be knocked on our backsides before we're finally ready to do something about it. Many of us live with our regrets and we manage our regrets. We distract ourselves from our regrets. You know, that's what alcohol does. It distracts you from your regrets. I have a good friend who is a recovery alcohol, been in recovery for years. And he has said to me, I've said this to y'all before, he said to me before alcohol saved his life. Alcoholism saved his life had a sex addiction as well. He says, my sex addiction saved my life. When you first hear that, you're just like, no, don't say that, please. Don't, sure, don't say that in a sermon and don't say it on a camera. But you know what he's saying? He's saying, I would have killed myself if I hadn't had a good distraction. I would have killed myself because what was going on inside of me was so terrible. 
These things were my distractions. They, they kept me going while I figured out how to deal with what was really going on inside of me. Now, that's no way to do it. But I can say it's not until you hit rock bottom oftentimes that you're ready to say, I'm tired of all these suitcases. I'm not hauling them around with me anymore. I'm traveling light from here out. I am not going to carry the ball and chain of my regrets with me, not for the rest of my life and certainly not into my grave. I'm not going to do that. That's why when Paul writes to the church at Corinth and asks them to repent of a pretty serious series of sins they committed, and they repented, he remarks on how eager they were to get this thing resolved. And I'm saying this because I'm just going to tell you this. There's going to be a moment in your life, you mark my word, if it hasn't happened yet, there's going to be a moment in your life where you're going to be knocked on your hiney. I hadn't said that in a sermon before. And it's the cancer treatments, I'm sure. Um, there's going to be a moment where you're knocked on your backside. And when you're knocked on your backside, if you're not eager to get back up, you're going to stay there. And so in this text, Paul describes what it looks like to be eager. He says, when you're ready to repent, when you're ready to get this resolved, I'll know it. Because you'll have earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself, indignation. That is, you're mad at yourself that you ever let yourself get here. You're mad at your own decisions. You're alarmed. You're longing to see things worked out. You're concerned. Your readiness to see justice. At every point, he says to this church, they prove themselves innocent. It is Paul's way of saying that when you finally get knocked down, and if you don't fall down, God will, if he loves you, He'll knock you down so that for once in your life, you can say, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm tired of this. This is not a ball and chain I intend to carry for the rest of my life. This is not baggage I'm going to haul all over the country. So turning regret into grace, before I get to it, let me just say this. If I were you, I would add the cost of regret into every temptation. Ask yourself before you yield to that temptation, how much are you willing to pay for the rest of your life for that? Because with most of our temptations, there is a long, long price tag. And the genius of the devil's lies is he convinces us somebody else will pay for it. I don't have to worry about it. But there's always a price tag to sin. There's always a price tag to compromise. There's always a price tag to listening to lies. So calculate that in and it might save you from making some dumb decisions. Now, Let's talk about turning regret into grace. I'm going to start here. When the prodigal son realized what he had done, the most powerful part of the story for me is that he did not develop a 15-point plan for how to get back into his father's grace. What would that have done anyway? The reason this story is a story about regret and grace is because he just went back to his father, hands in the air, and said... I have made a mess of my life. Is there any way you can take me back? And one of the beauties of the story is that the father doesn't ask him to do anything. I mean, it's really great that the father doesn't say, yes, I'm going to give you grace, but it's conditioned on these six things. The father takes him back. Listen, when you're ready to set aside the ball and chain, the excess baggage of your regret, when you're ready to do it and you approach the father, hands in the air, and you say to the father, I'm done with it, the grace kicks in at that very moment. Now, there's a lot of stuff you need to do, but not to get grace. The grace kicks in when you come back. Look at this text, the first part of Isaiah 30, verse 18. 
Listen to how Isaiah describes God's relationship or desired relationship for us. He longs to be gracious to us. He will rise up and show us compassion. God actually wants to show you grace. He wants to help you get rid of your excess baggage. He wants to break the ball and chain wrapped around your leg. He wants to see you free from the burden of your regrets. He wants that. So say to him, I'm ready to do it. I'm tired of this. And see how his grace responds. Second, uh, third, I don't, depends on whether we count this one or not, confess our sins. Say two things about confession. First of all, well, before I say the two things, confession is a very biblical theme. In confession, we name our sin and we name why our sin is wrong. There are two things about confession that matter. The first one is when you confess a sin, you, you, you own it. That's why confession matters. Until you confess it, you haven't owned it yet. You're still playing games with it. I've said this before, but when we were kids, we would have stray animals come up to the house and uh, cats mostly, dog, a dog or two too. And like we had cats that lived with us, but my dad would never let us name them. We never named them. We had one cat lived with us for probably 10 years and the cat died named the cat. That's, my brother called it Kitty Man, but it was a girl. Anyway, um, you know, I know now why my dad wouldn't let us name the cats. Think about it. Why would he let me name the cat? Because once I named it, it was mine. And he didn't, want, he didn't want to be responsible for those cats. So we never could name it. It's the same with confession. When you confess it to God and maybe one or two other trusted persons, you finally name it. You own it now. Now you're being honest about it. And I want you to know, until you're honest about it, it's still a ball and chain around your leg. It doesn't come off until you're honest. Imagine if the son had come back to the father and said, you'll never believe what I've done out there. I've established a new business for us and all I need is an advance loan. He would have kept himself in bondage and he would have further obligated his own father to bondage. It wasn't until he was honest that the freedom began. I'll tell you another thing that confessing does. It's actually a real big gift. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of, I come from a family of whiners. We have a proud tradition of whining in my family. And I try not to whine to you guys too much, but Julie will tell you when I get home, I whine a lot. And, um, probably the last three months she's gotten to listen to a whole lot of complaining and whining about whatever and I was even thanking you she's right here this morning I think I thanked her in the last 24 hours at least for listening to me complain about what all's going on I got all this rash all over me it's the weirdest looking thing I'm telling you you've got to see me naked um <laughs> it's a mess <laughs> But I know why I do it, because it turns a generalized anxiety into a discrete, boundaried issue that I can deal with. Until I describe it, it just feels like a monster. Once I name it and describe it, it's not so big anymore. Confessing is the act of naming and describing that which we've done so that it's not so big anymore. Now I know what to do about it. I've confessed my sin. Confessing is that sort of that introductory step to saying, okay, you know, I didn't destroy an entire nation. All I did was this, and now I'm going to deal with this, and then I'm over with dealing with this. There's a real power to naming it. And then fourth, turning away from our regretful behavior. In the Bible, it is called regret. And I want you to see, again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, this beautiful text, reminds us that the right kind of sorrow will bring repentance, and the right kind of repentance will bring salvation, and salvation leaves you with what? No regrets. No regrets. This deserves an entire lesson, this fifth point. 
Unfortunately, I'm down to just a handful of minutes. But I do want to say this is a really important step, and you can't skip it. When you're ready to overcome the burden of your regrets, though God has already forgiven you, you must make amends. You see, every sin that we commit, every, everything we do against someone else creates an injustice in the world, an imbalance. That's one reason why it haunts us, as we're aware of the fact that we've created an injustice. When we make amends, it is a feeble attempt at bringing justice back to the world. And so we need to do it thoughtfully. We need to be compassionate in how we do. We need to be gentle on ourselves. But the principle of the justice of God is a really important principle. You don't want a God who's not just, and you don't want a Christian faith that doesn't teach and practice justice. Here's the second part of Isaiah 30. Remember, I just read this part. The Lord longs to be gracious, but he also is a God of justice. So in the Old Testament, for example, if you were caught stealing something, you know how you had to resolve the issue? You had to give back what you stole. You had to add a fifth to it, 20%, and then you had to sacrifice to God because you had sinned against someone else, but you had also sinned against God. The cool thing is, once it was done, the debt was resolved. I've said this before, my dad, he, you know, raising five kids, one daughter and four of us boys, daddy, I was never in timeout my whole life. I've never been in timeout. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I was never in timeout. Daddy would spank us. And by the way, I've often said, I'm so grateful he did. He, he didn't spank us enough. But when, you know, he'd catch us doing something we, we knew we weren't supposed to do. He'd spank us. It'd be done in a minute, two minutes. And he'd, then afterwards, he'd hug you and say, I love you, and go back to playing. And it was over with. Like it didn't haunt me. I didn't drag it around for years. I never felt like, you know, I might have to do something really radical here and all. It was just kind of a nice way deal with it, get your punishment. I actually felt like the world was a really good, safe place because I knew every action brought a reaction. It was a nice place for me, really was. That I like a world where justice prevails. In this case, I become responsible for justice. And so Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that someone has something against you, first put your gift aside and go make it right with someone and then come back and offer your gift. What I'm trying to say is this, by making amends, we rectify the injustice that we ourselves created. Now, there are two instances where you can't offer amends that I can think of at least. One is sometimes the egg is so scrambled, there's no one scrambling it. I was mindful that um, this morning I was talking to a, a veteran of one of our foreign wars. He was in the first service. And he has confided in me without saying a whole lot about so many regrets he has about his time in the war and what did we do. And I just said, you can't undo that. And first of all, you were in a position where you, what choices did you have? You had no good choices. But you can't go back and undo all of that. You just can't. Maybe you wronged someone and they moved off. You don't even know who they are anymore. Or maybe you pulled out in front of somebody. You wish you could make it right. You can't. Um, maybe they're deceased. There's sometimes you can't do it. And then there's a second time that you probably shouldn't try. And that is if your effort to make amends creates more damage. You really hurt someone. They really don't want to interact with you. It's not a good time to reinsert yourself in their life and say, hey, I'm here to make amends. So here's what I suggest you do. If you find yourself in a position where you want to make amends, but it's just you can't, or it's not healthy for them, it's not good for them, offer to make amends to the universe. 
do something great for the universe. Foster a child or start a ministry or make a donation to somebody. Do something that says, I acknowledge I created an injustice and I'm going to do my part to make this a more just and merciful world. We can do that. And you know what? When you do that, you actually are often the one who gets the biggest joy of it. Because now you realize, I've kind of settled it now. I can move forward. And by the way, I do want to say one other thing that I totally left out at first service that I'm not proud of. Remind yourself that the debt you owe God was already paid. I mean, that's why I say this isn't rhetorical. It's not just forensic. It's actual. The debt we owe to God was paid by Jesus on the cross. He already paid the debt. That debt's paid. And that's one reason why the Christian faith has so much power because it reminds me that there are debts I cannot pay and God has already handled those for me. And with your regrets, especially poor decisions, things you did that you look back on and think, man, I could have done better than that. Just remind yourself, God can take you exactly where you are and do amazing things with it. Celebrate where you are so you didn't get whatever you wanted to get or you made a dumb decision, ended up years regretting it, you said no to the wrong person or you said yes to the right situation. Just trust that God will take it where it is. I've used this illustration, but think about Paul. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, the very first Christian who died, Deacon Stephen. Paul was there helping to stone him. And I just remind you, stoning is a very brutal way to kill somebody. They're taking huge boulders and cracking heads open. And Paul's doing this. He's doing it against Jesus. And here's how he describes himself. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and it, full, it deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. I mean, Paul had to have some regrets about that. Have you ever thought about what it might have been like to be the Apostle Paul and to go to church on Sunday in Jerusalem and to look across the way and there's the mother of Stephen sitting there? And you literally were part of the posse that took stones and split his skull open? How must it have felt to be Paul to show up and there's Stephen's kids singing on the pew with you? I mean, Paul must surely have had some regrets. And his way of dealing with his regrets is to say, this is the saying you need to accept. Christ died to pay off my debts. He paid the debt. The debt I couldn't pay. And for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That is, let the Lord use your regrets and then turn it into some kind of act of grace for others. Whatever you regret, to at least to the magnitude that you regret it, use it to the same magnitude to show grace to somebody else. You know, the best ministers we have are those who say, I remember what this was like, and I'm not going to use what I've gotten to help you. Those are the strongest ministries, people who are motivated by their own failures or their own sins or their own, the bad things that happen to them or their own bad choices. Use it to the glory of God and see what he does. Hey, I said it at the beginning, but this is just a true statement. I do think there are three kinds of people who hear this lesson. There are those who, the few whom I admire, I wish I was one of you, who somehow managed to pay every debt as you went and got to a certain place in life that you could honestly say, I wouldn't change a thing. No regrets. 
That's the rare person. Then there's the person who ought to regret a lot, but whose conscience isn't formed well enough to know that just yet. And then there's most of us, which is a mixed bag. We got regrets, carry them around with us. And I do think at some point for some of us, they become real heavy burdens. And what I want you to see in the story of the prodigal son is that as excessive as the son's regrets were, as excessive as the older brother's unforgiveness was, was the grace of the father excessive towards anyone who said, I want to come home. He'll take you back. He'll take you back and resolve that ball and chain and that excess baggage of your regrets. If I can help you with that, tell me how. Let's stand up and sing.